Hello. Yeah. Welcome to Infinite Cast, a podcast about Infinite Jest. Uh, part 29, maybe, or 30? I don't even know. Someone would uh, know. Thank you to the uh, two people who got in touch last week when I was a day late putting this out to be like, where's the pod? Yeah, uh, it maybe. is nice to hear that people are enthusiastic enough about this to care if it is 24 hours late and I'm coming fucking, out. No, no one's hitting us but up I, about it. Should you see? <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I do want to be clear. Uh, there is no schedule for this pod. We will put it out whenever the fuck we want. It has just uh, it has been convenient to do it on Saturday mornings. I mean, what else are we doing on Saturday mornings? Uh, well, for me, getting the vaccine. Yay. We are both one dose into uh, vaccination. So we've got those good, good yes. mRNA yes. like proteins flowing through our system. The Bill, the Bill Gates microbots are multiplying rapidly in my bloodstream at this moment. Can I make a confession? A sudden desire to uh, buy Microsoft products. Products and services. Yeah, have you tried the Zoom? <laughs> is that a Zoom? Wait, Zoom Microsoft? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, all I want to do is folks, all I want to do is Zoom, 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 Zoom. Uh, folks, the Zoom, Microsoft Zoom. Uh, use uh, code Infinite Cast uh, for thirty percent off, off your, your first, first Microsoft Zoom. <laughs> Spawn. Uh, Woka, uh, consider a subscription to Zune Box, where a brand new Microsoft Zune will be delivered to your home each month. Yeah, you don't have to worry about Zune anymore. Preloaded with a full copy of Steely Dan's Aja. <laughs> Wait, can I say that I love a sore vaccine arm? Do you love the sore vaccine arm? I love it. Do you want me to just give you a, a, a slight <laughs> punch? No, it's got to be from the needle. It's got to be a needle. It's got to be the needle. I mean, this. Can you just? Ooh, oh no! The, the we're watching tennis, and his shoe just fell off. <laughs> Man's shoe just came off. Oh God! Uh, this, MF, this MF shoe looks like a fan. Last week, uh, in a uh, interjection, I pointed out a beautiful pear trophy that somebody mm -hmm. got at one of these tennis highlights clips. Yeah. Uh, later, Molly looked up the pear trophy and saw it on a list of worst tennis trophies. Awful. Uh, Incorrect. The pear trophy is great. It's beautiful. Also listed in that list of worst tennis trophies, the beautiful ceramic uh, cup given out at the Cincinnati Open. It's gorgeous. It's a, it's ceramic. It's yeah. made of of of, of beautiful uh, local cerams. Yeah, I hope I hope you're proud, Bleacher Report, of what you did just to get a few measly clicks, insulting these beautiful tennis cups that were worked on with craftsmanship and care. Yes. Whatever, man. Fuck you, Bleacher Report. <laughs> uh, anyway, should we get into it? Yeah, we got to get into it. Okay, let's go. All right. First, a, a very short section, which is just the putative curriculum vitae of Helen P. Steeply. Okay. 36, 1.93 meters, 104 kilograms, and then AB and MJA. I don't know what either of those stand for, and we don't get an end note to find out. Great. Uh, one year at time, graduate intern for the newsmakers section. <laughs> 16 months at Decade Magazine, hottest and noddest, a trends and style analysis column until Decade folded. Five years at Southwest Annual, which is human interest, geriatric medical, personality, and tourism articles. <laughs> Five months at Newsweek, 11 small features on trends and entertainment until her executive editor, with whom she was in love, left Newsweek and took her with him. Then one year at Ladies' Day, personality and medical cosmetic features, some research firsthand until one weekend when the executive editor reconciled with his wife and HPS got mugged and purse snatched on West 60, 62nd and vowed never again to live in Manhattan. 
and then 15 months to present at Moment Magazine, Southwest Bureau, Erythema, Arizona, which is medical, soft sports, personality, and home entertainment trends reporting, masthead byline, contributing editor status. Uh, it's, it's pretty good. Helen Steepley, of course, is Hughes' alter ego. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, the From the Bureau of Unspecified Services. Right. Gotta have a fake resume. All right. Let's let's leave that where it is. Yeah, the the purse snatching bit really makes it believable. Sure. All right. Thereafter, proceeding first to the Upper Brighton and now to the cooperative Back Bay Edge Brownstone she had once lived in with Orin and performed in with his father and then passed on to Molly Notkin, today's party's guest of honor and hostess in one, as of yesterday, enjoying ABD pre-doctoral status in film and film cartridge theory at MIT, having cleared the notorious hurdle of oral examinations on that day by offering her examination committee a dramatically rendered, and if she did say so herself, devastating oral critique of post-millennial Marxist film cartridge theory from the point of view of Marx himself, Marx as pretend film cartridge theorist and scholar. Still dressed as K.M. a day later in celebration, the glued beard matted and pubic black, Hamburg ordered direct from Wiesbaden, soot from a terribly obscure British souvenir filth shop. She has no idea that Joelle's been in a cage since YTSDB, has no idea what she and Jim Incondenza were even about for 21 months, whether they were lovers or what whether Orin left because they were lovers or what. Which takes us to end note number 80. Orin and Condenza knew that Joel Van Dyne and Dr. James O. and Condenza weren't lovers. Mrs. Avril and Condenza did not know that they weren't lovers, although by the time of Joel's acquaintance with him, Jim wasn't in a position to be lovers with anybody, neurologically speaking. Mm -hmm. Though it's not clear to Joel whether Avril even knew this, since Jim and Avril hadn't been intimate with each other, i.e. conjugally, for quite some time, though Jim hadn't known the precise reason why Avril was so sanguine about their not being intimate until the incident with the Volvo, where apparently Avril had been with someone, Oren would not say who or whether he knew who, in the Volvo, and had idly and disastrously, whether with unconscious intent or not, and presumably postcoitally idly written the person's first name in the steam of the steamed-up car window, which name had disappeared with the steam but had reappeared the next time the window had steamed up. Ah. Which had been when James had been driving to this very brownstone to shoot Joel in the weird, wobble-lensed, maternal, I'm-so-terribly-sorry monologue scene of the last thing he'd done and then never showed her and had ordered the cartridge's burial in the brass casket with him in the same testament in which he'd willed Joel an absurd and addiction-enabling annuity, which Avril'd never have lowered herself to the level of contesting, but which could hardly be expected not to have solidified the appearance that they'd been lovers, Joel and Jim. All right. I think I got all that. Quite a little bit of plot. <laughs> <laughs> in a little in a, in a, in a, in a end note. Uh, okay, whether Oren left because they were lovers or what, or that Joel even now lives hand to lung on a grossly generous trust willed to her by a man she unveiled for but never slept with. The prodigious punter's father, infinite jester, director of a final opus so magnum he'd claimed to have it locked away. Joel's never seen the completed assembly of what she'd appeared in or seen anyone who'd seen it, 
and doubts that any sum of scenes as pathologic as he'd stuck that long, quartzy, auto-wobbling lens on the camera and filmed her for could have been as entertaining as he'd said the thing he'd always wanted to make had broken his heart by ending up. The, we'll the, deal with this later. The Infinite Jest. The Infinite Jest, volume five or whatever. Climbing to the third floor, stairs pale from wear, still trembling from the AM's interruptus. Joelle finds herself having a hard time climbing, as if the force of gravity goes up as she does. The party sounds start around the second landing. Here is Molly Notkin, dressed as a crumbling Marx again, greeting Joelle at the door with the sort of delighted mock surprise U.S. hostesses use for greetings. <laughs> Notkin secures Joelle's veil for her during removal of the beaded coat and poncho, then lifts the veil slightly in a practiced two-finger gesture to deliver a double-cheek kiss that is sour with cigarettes and wine. Joelle never smokes when veiled. Asking how Joelle got here, and then without waiting for an answer, offering her that odd kind of British Colombian apple juice they found they both liked so, and that Joelle at home's abandoned and gone back to the big red soda water of childhood, which Notkin doesn't know and still cluelessly considers extra sweet Canadian juice to be just uh, pretty much both her and Joelle's biggest vices. Uh, extra sweet Canadian juice sounds good right about now. Sure. Uh, Molly Notkin's the kind of soul you want desperately to be polite to but have to hide it with because she'd be mortified if she suspected you were ever just being polite to her about anything. Joelle makes a get out of here gesture. The really, really good kind? The kind that looks muddy, it's so fresh. Where'd you find it this late, this far east? The kind you just have to about to strain, it's so fresh. The living room is full and hot, campy mambo playing, walls still the same off-white, but all the trim now a confectioner's rich brown. Or plus there's wine, Joel sees, a whole assortment on the old sideboard. It took three men with cigars in gray jumpsuits to get up the stairs when they got it. An assortment of bottles of different shapes and dim colors and different levels of what's inside. Molly Notkin has one dirty-nailed hand on Joelle's arm and one on the head of a chair of Maya Darren brooding avant-guardedly in vivid, vivid spun-glass polymers. Remember the, direct, the chair is shaped like directors? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes. Uh, and is telling Joelle about her orals in a party's near shout that will leave her horse well before this one's sad end. A good muddy juice fills Joelle's mouth with spit that's as good as the juice. <laughs> and her linen veil is drying and beginning once again comfortingly to flutter with her breath per and perched alone and glanced at covertly by persons who don't know they know her voice. She feels the desire to raise the veil before a mirror to refine some of her purchase, purse's untouched material raise the veil, and set free the encaged, rapacious thing inside to breathe the only unclothed gas it can stomach. She feels ghastly and sad. She looks like death. Her mascara is all over the place. No one can tell. <laughs> the plastic Pepsi bottle and glass cigar tube and lighter and packet of glycine bags are a shape in the corner of the rain-darkened cloth purse that rests on the floor just below her dangling clogs. Molly Notkin is standing with Rutherford Keck and Crosby Baum and a radically bad-postured man before the school-supplied Infernotron viewer. Baum's wide back and pompadour obscure whatever's on the screen. Academics' voices sound nasal with a cultivated stutter at sentences start. 
A good many of James O. and Condense's films were silent. He was a self-acknowledged visual filmmaker. His damaged, grinning boy, Joel, never got to know because Oren has disliked him, often carried the cases with the lenses, grinning like somebody squinting into bright light. <laughs> that would be Mario. Yes. That insufferable child actor, Smothergill, used to contort his face at the boy, and he'd just laugh, which sent Smothergill into tantrums that Miriam Prickett would resolve in the bathroom somehow. An old Latin revival CD issues at acceptable volume from the speakers screwed into planters and hung with thin chains from each corner of the cream ceiling. Another large loose group is dancing in the cleared space between the cluster of directorial chairs and the bedroom door. Most favoring YDAU's minimal mambo, this autumn's East Coast anti-craze, the dancers appearing to be just this side of standing still the subtlest possible hints of fingers snapping under right-angled elbows. Orin and Kinda, <laughs> the minimal mambo. <laughs> it's like what West Side Story, but just dialed down to like 0.3%. <laughs> Orin and Condenza, she has not forgotten, had a poor mottled swollen elbow above a forearm the size of a leg of lamb. He had switched neatly from arm to leg. Joel was Oren Incandenza's only lover for 26 months and his father's optical beloved for 21. A foreign academic with an almost Franciscan bald spot has the swirling limp of someone with a prosthesis hired by MIT after her time. The better dancers' movements are so tiny they are evocative and compel watching. Their near-static mass curdled and bent somehow subtly around one beautiful woman, quite beautiful, her back undulating minimally in a thin, tight, blue-and-white striped sailorish top as she alludes to a cha-cha with maracas empty of anything to rattle, watching herself almost dance in the full-length mirror of quality plate that after Oren left, Jim, uh, Joel had forbidden Jim to hang and had slid beneath her bed face down. Now it's the West Wall's framed mirror hung between two empty, ornate gilt frames, not can thinks she's being retro-ironic by having the frames themselves framed <laughs> in rather less ornate frames, in wry allusion to the early experialist fashion of making art out of the accessories of artistic presentation. Ce n'est pas un frame. The framed frames hanging not quite evenly on either side of the mirror, he'd cut for the scenes of that last ghastly thing he'd made her stand before, reciting in the openly empty tones she'd gone on to use on air. The girl stands transfixed in alternating horizontal blue and white, then vertically sliced by bar-cut sunlight, diced, drunk, so wrecked on good vintage her lips hang slack and the reflected cheeks' muscles have lost all integrity, and the cheeks jiggle like the outstanding paps in her little sailor's top. <laughs> Gross. Apocalyptic rouge and a nose ring that's either electrified or is catching bits of light from the window. She's watching herself with unselfconscious fascination in the only serviceable mirror here outside the bathroom. This absence of shame at the self-obsession. Is she Canadian? <laughs> mirror cult? Not possibly a UHID. The bearing's all wrong. But now, whispered to by a near-motionless man in an equestrian helmet, she turns <laughs> abruptly, falling away from her own reflection to explain, not to the man so much as no one in particular, the whole dancing mass, 
I was just looking at my tits, she says, looking <laughs> down at herself. Aren't they beautiful? And it's moving. There's something so heartbreakingly sincere in what she says. Joelle wants to go to her, tell her it is and will completely be all right. She's pronounced beautiful like the earlier interested in four syllables, splitting the diphthong, betraying her class and origin with a heartbreaking openness. Joelle's always viewed as either terribly stupid or terribly brave. The girl raising her striped arms in triumph or artless thanks for being constructed this way. These tits, built by whom and for whom, never occurring, artlessly ecstatic. She is not drunk, Joel now sees, but has taken ecstasy. Joel can see from the febrile flush and eyes jacked so wide you can make out brain meat behind the ball's <laughs> poles. <laughs> what, what is this party? <laughs> it's a fucking grad student party. Yeah, in the in the middle of the, who took in the middle of the day. I think it's at. I think it's in the evening. Well, I guess I'm, I'm seeing sunlight. Still seeing sunlight. Oh, s- sunset Streams. maybe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, AKA X or MDMA, a beta something, an early synthetic. Emotional acid, the love drug, so-called. Big among the artistic young under, say, Bush and successors. Since fallen into relative disuse because its pulverizing hangover has been linked to the impulsive use of automatic weapons in public venues. Oh, God. A hangover that makes a freebase hangover look like a day at the emotional beach. The difference between suicide and homicide consisting perhaps only in where you think you discern the cage's door. Would she kill somebody else to get out of the cage? Was the allegedly fatal, entertaining, and scopophiliac thing Jim alleges he made out of her unveiled face here at the start of YTSDB a cage or really a door? Had he even cut the tape into something coherent? There was nothing coherent in the mother-death cosmology and apologies she'd repeated over and over. Are we, are we gathering that some part of the addictiveness of, of the entertainment is the beauty of Joel Van Dyne? Mm, maybe. Maybe. Uh, inclined over that auto-wobbled lens propped up in the plaid-sided pram. He never let her see it, not even the dailies. <laughs> He'd killed himself less than 90 days later. Fewer than 90 days? How much must a person want out to put his head in a microwave oven? A dim woman. God, that, all, was his, that was his uh his his cause of death. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. A dim woman. All the kids had known of in Boaz had put her cat in the microwave to dry it after a tick bath, and set the oven just on defrost, and the cat ended up all over the woman's kitchen's walls. How would you rig the thing so that it would activate with the door open? Is there just some sort of refrigerator light button you could hold down and secure with tape? Would the tape melt? She cannot remember thinking of it once in four years. Did she kill him somehow, just inclining veilless over that lens? The woman in love with her own breasts is being congratulated with the subtlest possible allusions to clapping hands from barely <laughs> animate dancers with their glass tulips held between their teeth. And Vogelsong of Emerson College tries suddenly to stand on his head and is immediately ill in a spreading plum-colored ectoplasm the dancers do not even try to evade the spread of. And Joelle applauds the ecstatic woman as well, because they are, Joelle admits freely, the paps, they are attractive, (laughs) which in the union is designated compellingly within compatible relative limits. Joelle has no problem seeing beauty approved within compatible relative limits. 
She feels not empathy or maternal nurture any longer, just a desire to swallow every last drop of saliva she will ever manufacture and exit this vessel, <laughs> have 15 more minutes of too much fun, eliminate her own map with the afflatus of the blind god of all doorless cages, and she lets herself slide forward from Melier's lap, a tiny fall, <laughs> leading with her lumpy purse, a glass of matte apple juice toward the door beyond the lines of a becalmed conga and doorwayed huddles of a warm and well-felt theoretical party. And then again, delays, dithers, and the easement to the bathroom is blocked. She is the only veiled woman here and an academic generation ahead of most of these candidates and rather feared, even though not many know she is an oral personality, <laughs> feared for quitting instead of failing. And because of the connection of the memory of Jim, and she is given a social, a certain wide social berth, allowed to delay and orbit and stand unengaged at the fringes of shifting groups, obliquely glanced at, veil going concave at each in breath, waiting with hip shot nonchalance for the bathroom off the door to, to, of the bedroom to clear. Uh, Iacarino, the chaplain archivist, <laughs> and a jaundiced yellow older man have gone into Molly's bedroom and left the door ajar waiting nonchalantly, ignoring the foreign academic who wishes to know where she works with that veil, <laughs> turning from him rudely, brain heaving in its bone box, memorizing every detail like collecting empty shells, sipping cloudy juice under neatly lifted corners of veil, now looking at instead of through the translucent cloth, the improbably deformed equivalent of closing the eyes in concentration on sound, <laughs> letting the very last party wash over her, passed gracefully by uh, different mingling guests and once or twice almost touched, seeing only in-rushing and then billowing white, listening to different mingling voices, the way the unveiled young taste wine. This is a technologically constituted space. These are, <laughs> these are all, I think, going to be quotes. Great. Thing opens tight on Remington in a hideous grandfatherly flannel suit, B&W, straight full frontal shot in this grainy B&W stuff Bouvier taught him to manipulate the F-stop to mimic that horrid old Super 8. Sta straight full frontal, staring past the camera. No attempt to disguise he's reading off a prompter, monotone and all, saying, Few foreigners realize that the German term Berliner is also the Vulgate idiom for a common jelly donut. And thus that Kennedy's seminal Ich bin ein Berliner was greeted by the Teutonic crowds with a delight only apparently political. At which point he aims his thumb and finger at his own temple. At which point his TA doubles the focal length. So there's this giant, different quote, I would die to defend your constitutional right to error, friend. But in this one case, you... They used to be less beautiful, but then Rutherford said to quit sleeping face down. No, no, I'm saying that this, this whole thing, what you and I are discoursing within, is a technologically constituted space. <laughs> ah, du nous avons foie au poison. Something about a fish? Uh, not poisson, poison, poison. Oh, we, okay. uh, we, I think it's we have faith in poison, possibly <laughs> like Quebecois. How, how would you say po uh, poison fish in, in French? Poisson, poisonné? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's good cheese, but I've had better cheese. <laughs> An experience that I find myself uh, having semi-regularly. Mm -hmm. Mainwaring, this is Kirby. 
Kirby here is in pain. He's been telling me about it, and now he'd like to tell you about it. <laughs> Complete mystery why Eve Plum didn't show. It's known she'd re-upped for the part. The whole rest of them were there. Even Henderson and that Davis woman as Alice, who had to be wheeled out under nurse's care. My God. And Peter, looking as if he'd eaten nothing but pastry for the past 40 years. Greg with that absurd hairpiece and snakeskin boots. Yes, but all the kids recognizable underneath somehow. This pre-digital insistence on continuity through time that was the project's whole magic and raison. You know this. You're currently on pre-digital phenomenology and Brady theory. <laughs> and then, but now here's this entirely incongruous middle-aged black woman playing Jan. Do you get it? Is that br- a Brady Bunch? A Brady Bunch like remake? The, <laughs> with like an interracial cast? Yeah. Uh, Degustibus non est disputandum. <laughs> what does that mean? That's something in Latin. Whatever. Disgustibus? Balls. <laughs> <laughs> An incongruous central blackness could have served to accentuate the terrible whiteness that had been in intellect. The entire historical effect of a seminal program was horribly, horribly altered. Terribly altered. Eisenstein and Kurosawa and Michaud walk into a bar. <laughs> You know those mass market cartridges for the masses? The ones that are so bad they're somehow perversely good? This was worse than that. This is just Twitter. Uh, yeah, this is... Uh, Fa- Foster Wallace is, is succinctly predicting what, uh, what it's like to scroll through film hashtag Twitter. Film Twitter. <laughs> hashtag film Twitter. So-called Phantom... <laughs> they've, they've ru- the, the Brady Bunch remake is ruining my childhood by recasting... The, they recasted it as a black Brady Bunch? I can't believe it. Uh, they should do a black Brady Bunch. Why not? Well, I think... I guess it's basically what blackish is. <laughs> I, I think the thing the thing is that they, they got all the same cast of the Brady Bunch in their extreme old age to keep playing their characters, ex- but they replaced Jan with a middle-aged black woman <laughs> for no reason, which is almost... That's funnier. That's, very, that's a funny idea. Uh, so-called phantom, but real. I like this tennis boy with the Nutella jersey. Oh, Nutella's a good... That's, that's good a good work. brand to rep. Yeah. I'll look into that. So-called phantom, but real, and mobile. First the spine, then not the spine, but the right eye socket. Then the old sockets fit as a fiddle, but the thumb, the thumb doubles me over. It won't stay put. (laughs) Fucks with the emulsion's gradient so that all the tesseract's angles appear to be right-angled, except in... So what I did, I sat right up next to him, you see. So in a sense, he didn't have room to stalk or draw a bead. Keck had said they needed a good 10M, so I cocked the hat just so, just ever so slightly, like so. Just cocked it over to the side, like so, and sat down practically on the man's knee. Asked him after his show carp. He keeps pedigreed carp, and of course you can imagine what. (laughs) More interesting issue from a Heideggerian perspective is a priori, whether space as a concept is inframed by technology as a concept. It has a mobile cunning, a kind of wraith or phantom-like, because they're emotionally more labile at that stage. (laughs) So get dentures, she said. So get dentures? Who shot the incision? Who did the the cinematography on the incision? Way it can be more like film qua film. Comstock says if it even exists, it has to be something more like an aesthetic pharmaceutical. Some beastly post-annual scopophiliacal vector. Super subliminals in that. Some kind of abstractable hypnosis. 
an optical dopamine cue, a recorded delusion. Duquette says he's lost contact with three colleagues. He said a good bit of Berkeley isn't answering their phone. Okay. I don't think anyone here would dispute that they're absolutely fetching tits, Melinda. (laughs) Melinda. We had blinis with caviar. There were tartines. We had sweetbreads in mushroom cream sauce. He said it was all on him. He said he was treating. There was roast artichoke topped with a sort of sly aioli. Mutton stuffed with foie gras. Double oh chocolate rum cake. <laughs> this sounds like a very heavy meal, but I would like to eat it. Seven kinds of cheese. A kiwi glace. And brandy and snifters. You needed two hands to swirl. <laughs> uh, that coke-addled fag in his Morris Mini. The prosthetic film scholar. Fans do not begin to keep it all in the great convexity. It creeps back in. What goes around, it comes back around. This your nation refuses to learn. It will keep creeping back in. You cannot give away your filth and prevent all creepage, no? (laughs) Filth, by its very nature, is a thing that is creeping always back. Me, I can remember when your Charles was cafe with cream. Now look at it. It is the blue river. You have a river outside you that is Robin's egg blue. (laughs) I think you mean great concavity, Alain. I meant great convexity. I know what it is, the thing I meant. And then it turns out he'd put Ipecac in the brandy. It was the most horrible thing you've ever seen. Oh, God. You still want that meal? (laughs) Everyone all over, spouting like whales. I'd heard the term projectile vomiting, but I never thought that I... You could aim. The pressure was such that you could aim. And out come his grad technicians from under the table cloths like overhang. And he pulls out a canvas chair and clapper and begins filming the whole staggering, spouting, groaning. (sighs) This ultimate cartridge as ecstatic death rumor has been going around like a lazy toilet since Dishmaster, for Christ's sake. (laughs) Simply make inquiries. Mention some obscure foundation grant. Obtain the thing through whatever shade of market the thing's alleged to be out in. Have a look. See that it's doubtless just high-concept erotica or an hour of rotating whorls or something like Lake Makavajev, something that's only entertaining after it's over on reflection. The striated parallelogram of PM sunlight is elongating in transit along the co-op's eastern wall over bottle-laden sideboard and glass cabinet of antique editing equipment and louvered vent and shelves of art cartridges in their dull black and dun cases. The mole-studded man in the equestrian helmet is either winking at her or has a tick. There's the pre-suicide's classic longing. Sit down one second. I want to tell you everything. My name is Joelle Van Dyne, Dutch-Irish, and I was reared on family land east of Shiny Prize, Kentucky, the only child of a low-pH chemist and his second wife. I now have no accent except under stress. I'm 1.7 meters tall and weigh 48 kilograms. I occupy space and have mass. I breathe in and breathe out. Joelle had never before today been conscious of the sustained volition required to just breathe in and breathe out, her veil recessing into nose and rounded mouth and then bowing out slightly like curtains over an open pane. Convexity. Concavity. Convexity. Concavity, damn your eyes. Could we perhaps uh, pause there sure. for this week? Yeah. Just because we're at 30 minutes. Perfect. Uh, and Shit's about to get 
crazy. And I think that, you know, after that segment of the all the quotes is a good place to stop. Well, there are more, but and, yes. And I don't want, <laughs> and I, I just don't want to go long today because we have other yeah, stuff yeah. to do. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, <laughs> that bit bit of the quotes is very funny. And it just a, a very well, uh, you're absolutely right that that is exactly what scrolling through <laughs> through Twitter, especially uh, one of the days where everybody's trying to digest takes on a, a like a movie or something yeah. that just came out. Um, God, I th- think one of the Chavos said this, but maybe not. Uh, I think it was about um, one when whenever somebody important dies on Twitter, it's like uh-huh. uh, it's like be watching a hundred people try to shove the same turd down at one toilet, <laughs> uh, which yeah. I guess is it's very specifically accurate of Twitter, but it is also. I think a, a fairly universal experience of that thing that you sometimes uh, encounter mm-hmm. and sometimes encounter at parties of everybody trying to have the same opinion at the same time. Sure. Or, or try to, to lodge an opinion on the same thing at the same time or, or you know, um, participate in the same conversation at the same time when, when um, perhaps, uh, you know, and I'm often guilty of this as well, but perhaps a, a thing simply does not need uh, that many participants or takes opinions or opinions are, are like assholes yeah that's true everyone has one yes and no one wants to and, talk to and one. no one yeah no one wants to to hear it <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the like grad school academia thing yeah. is uh is very painful yes it's- um but there, everyone there seems to be having fun. I just, I like the detail that it's specifically like everyone's getting fucked up on red wine, which yeah, is red, again such a grad school party kind of thing. Not but, that they've ever but been. That, to a grad so that's school why party. the thing, the person on ecstasy stood out to me as being like, "What? Well, this, this is not. This is incongruous." Oh, here. see, I think that's a perfect bit to to do ecstasy at a grad, grad, school, grad school film cartridge party, party celebrating someone's oral PhD. dissertation. That is, I, that yeah, is funny. That's a that's a good bit. I, lo- I love to, I love to do ecstasy as a bit. Candy candy flipping is a bit. The the uh, alleging that uh, ecstasy hangovers cause mass shootings does not <laughs> does not make any sense. I feel to me. like um, I feel like that was the line on ecstasy in the nineties. I remember uh, watching some ecstasy panic videos in like my drug ed class, mm-hmm. and I think people were very concerned about it then. And I remember the the line on ecstasy always being. I feel like this is like the fourth time I've talked about ecstasy on podcasts like this week. Oh God, <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, fine. Is uh is um. That that you would do it and it would make you feel great, but then you, it would uh, like burn out your pleasure receptors. You would never and make, be happy. You again. Would, it'd make it impossible to be happy yeah, ever yeah. again. I do. Th- I that think that was like was, the the dare to keep kids off drugs line on ecstasy. There was a video that we watched in health class in high school, or maybe even middle school. That I think it was someone who ended up killing herself because she had done ecstasy, and then, and then it made her so depressed. Yes. But have have I said this on air? There was a what a very formative magazine for me was Girls Life magazine. I think you've talked about Girls Life on one of the pods, but go go off, Queen. Well, they have they. I just remember girls. very clearly, girl. I mean, every girl has a life. Has a life, yeah. It was an article that was like a cautionary tale about ecstasy and it was a girl who did it when she was, you know, a young teen for the first time and she was nervous and everyone was like, drink a lot of water because you'll get dehydrated and she drank too, too much, much water, water and, died. and flushed all the sodium out of her system and died. Like but I remember whole, reading I that and being the, like... this bit before, like yeah. the hold your wee for a wee thing. Remember that person oh, yeah. who died of water poisoning? Yeah. Well, that she died. I think she ruptured something and got infected. No, I thought I thought it was like like basically like 
I don't know. Maybe, oh yeah, I forget, well, I, I forget what the deal was with that. That was that's a list of unusual deaths. Yes. Uh, Wikipedia entry, but yeah, just in my head, I was like, oh no, ecstasy's bad. And then it wasn't until like ten years later that I was like, she drank too much water. It, she didn't <laughs> OD on ecstasy. Yeah, but that was one of the scare the 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 scares thing. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, yeah, the nineties they were really freaking out. Is this really the only chapter? The only time we have seen the same character continue directly from one chapter to another so far? Probably. Yeah, everything else has been pretty... Um, bouncing around. Yeah. But I don't even... I feel like this, the small things that have separated her narrative are like like Helen Steepley's Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. CV the Helen Ste- yeah. Or the list of the years subsidized time. Um, yeah, this is pro- probably one of the longest continued scenes so yeah, far as Joel. The walk to the idea I really did not expect it to continue to being Joel when you started reading today. So wait, let's briefly talk about um uh the the thing that she was talking about that she was in that was the last thing that Jim ever made. Yeah, so wait, I I th- thought that uh the last thing that he made was that he died working on an in- one of the versions of Infinite Chest. I mean for all, I think this is where it starts getting into, like, at least when I've looked online, like, it's not confirmed. Like, mm-hmm. this is still all theoretical. But the idea being that he made Infinite Jest last. He killed himself less than 90 days later, or 90 days later. Joelle was in it. Mm-hmm. She was unveiled. It was with a lens that, that mimicked a wobbly, blurry lens that mimics like, being like a newborn baby. Okay. And the camera's in the pr- a pram. And Joelle's looking down and apologizing over and over to the camera. Okay. And that this might be, it's, once again, not confirmed, but might be the infinite jest. That That is a sense of what the infinite jest is? Yeah. And that's something that is so compelling that it's impossible to look away from. That uh, being a baby and having your beautiful mother apologize to you? Yeah. I <laughs> I get it. That sounds very vaguely ASMR-y. Right, <laughs> which isn't isn't that what people want? Now? I, yeah, I guess. I mean, that is one of the biggest fantasies of modern life is being baby. Yeah, just being uh, going back into like a womb, a womb like state. Yes, just being a baby drinking coffee. All the all the entertainment, all the like drugs. Mm-hmm. Like I, th- I feel like it's not not a um, coincidence that I feel like I know obviously opiates are a huge problem, yes. but uh, but I think low key uh, benzos might actually be as much of a problem as well yeah well i mean that is the fantasy of obliterating consciousness so much that you can actually murder your anxiety by feel and go back to the the last time in your life when you had Had, no problems yeah which which is being a tiny baby Mm -hmm. with your your beautiful mother apologizing beautiful mother yeah sorry sorry you were born sorry you were born (laughs) i got that's pretty good that's compelling yeah a compelling i mean don't isn't that what everyone wants For mommy to apologize. For mommy to, because you know, bringing the, you in the, for jo- the curse of life. The joke of life is I didn't ask to be born, right? <laughs> but here you are, now existing. I, now I gotta like ma- send all these emails and like pay bills and shit. Fuck. There's a really good book that I read recently called Breasts and Eggs, and uh, <laughs> which is, I know, good book title, right? Yeah. Japanese woman writer. I'm I'm blanking on the name. Um, but one of the like main problems in the novel is the idea of like how is it cruel to have kids not from a yes. environmental standpoint societal standpoint but from but a basically, consent standpoint <laughs> but but from a consent standpoint and from a you know yes. is it are you doing something bad by giving birth to a person yeah. who might suffer and pro and probably will yes and it's a it was an interesting uh exploration of that that i do feel like 
infinite jest is touching. Having on. a child is basically the ultimate act of selfishness, but that, it, but it's also necessary, uh, and love and and important. Mieko Kawakami <laughs> wrote Breast and Eggs. Highly recommend. Uh, it's I I like to think of of having kids as more more of like the look I had to deal with this shit. Now you have to deal with this shit too. Your ha- your hazing existence. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I do. Like, I wonder if that if maybe David is is picking up on something is that you can raise your kid however you want. Yeah, you can you can do whatever you want, but you should at some point, maybe once they've reached some level of maturity, apologize. Yes. And be like, I try to negate somehow the essential selfishness of having a kid. Yeah, but probably not until they're in their 20s because if you do that too early, you're going to give them like a complex or something. You're going to give them a complex no matter what. Well, that's true, <laughs> but you're going to add to the whatever you're complex, you're, to give, the complex. You're, giving them. you're giving them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if like once I, you know, you're, you're like kind of post-college age, like once you're like post-22, if, if your parents just called you up one day and was like, hey, look, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's something. I mean, everyone's relationship yeah. with their parent is different, but at least I feel with with mine, you know, you didn't get that. Like, yeah. uh, like you ask the, the parents, "Why did you have have me?" And it's like, "Well, just cause." I'm no, like, you that's have, not a good enough answer. <laughs> you have to you have to uh, you have to apologize to your kid when you think they're at their moment of at an early moment of like greatest success, like when they first, mm. you know, when they first get their like. Uh, uh, National Merit Scholarship. No, no. Like I was gonna say, when they they land their first big job or something, or okay. uh, you know, maybe maybe right after they uh, they they get engaged or something. You mm-hmm. know, at a, at a moment where they're they're really flying high. What if they never have one of those? Well, at some point, somebody's gonna have like a, a really uh, on How like a really know? good day. How do you know? That's the point. Well, the point that I'm trying to get across <laughs> is <laughs> that you have to do it. At the at the good moment, not the bad moment, at, not the bad moment, because mm-hmm. you have to be like, look, you're going to have a lot of happiness, but you're also going to have a lot of sads, mm. and I'm apologizing preemptively for those because, uh, you know, you didn't you didn't ask for any of this shit. Sure. Oh, wild. Uh, would you like to attend the 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 red wine grad school party? Yeah, I would go. I I like I like when people. It might not be. A popular opinion, but I I like when people kind of suck at a party, <laughs> because or just when people suck in general. Because I'm just like, oh well, there you go. That's yeah. that's a that's a type of guy. Yes, I love when people it like self-aggrandize, nice feeling like feeling like either the coolest or the uh, the most interesting person in the room too. When you're at a shitty party, sure. I I just think more like it it validates me in, in a certain way when I see people acting like a blowhard or yeah. a jerk or. I love when people name drop and like, uh, yes, that is always very fun. Like just like get really in on themselves. I'm just like, I, this is entered. It's not, not entertaining. To yes. Me. Um, but then I go home and I'm like, at least I didn't do that to people. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. It is people who name drop is very, is always very entertaining to me. Like, Oh really? You worked with that guy. Mm, mm. Interesting. Mm. Well, like I was, I was once in a car, um, on a shoot heading to a second or third location and we were talking about something like the, uh, the produce, like the branded producer of like a shoe I, that I won't name. And we were talking about Steve Aoki and I was saying how I just watched his <laughs> documentary. Yes. Uh, because I think the guy brought it up that like Steve Aoki like he worked with him or something yeah. and he then proceeds to like recap it for me the documentary <laughs> and I was like I, I know 
I just watched it. I just watched it. But he wanted to be the one to tell me that he knew all the stuff about Steve Aoki firsthand. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm aware. Uh, But I didn't get mad. I'm just like, that's. You should have just been been like, I know Steve Aoki's my dad. <laughs> it just really never refused to not double down on it. Wait, Steve what do you Aoki mean? famously not a dad. Steve Aoki has not procreated. You, he adopted you as He's an adult. He's my adopted father. He adult adopted you. Yes, that's funny. <laughs> More people reasons. should do that just for fun. <laughs> yes, adult fo- fostering. I foster it. Well, I feel like I was talking about adult adoption the other day. Celebrities should adopt normal adult. <laughs> like Angelina Jolie should adopt like a a 25 year old 25 year old marketing assistant (laughs) Angelina Jolie's my mom yes just you know it's good it's good uh all right all right we'll get to the second half of this chapter later uh bye bye uh just a baby drinking coffee